This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we were able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. After the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors. And in the coming weeks, we'll be providing you with the audio of these interviews. Now, sound quality may be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content you come to expect. Today, our author is an intelligence expert and award-winning creator of five novels, Alma Katsu. We spoke with her via Zoom in April of 2020 about her book, The Deep, by publisher Penguin Random House. This writer of horror and historical fiction has had her work published in 10 different languages around the world. But her career before writing for public consumption was with the NSA, CIA, and other intelligence agencies in the United States. Given that background, she knows how important it is to get the facts correct. And with that in mind, before she took on her most recent book about the twin ocean liners, the Titanic and the Britannic, she had to really think through what she was getting herself into. But I really had to think twice about the Titanic. This had over 2,300 people between passengers and crew. So much more written about it. And the most daunting thing is there's this huge legion of fans and it just makes you worry a little bit that if you get something a little too wrong, you know, they might come after you. But people understand I'm writing fiction. I'm not really writing a recreation of the events of the Titanic. I'm using the historical event to sort of tell a different story. And we'll hear about that story of the deep, talk a bit about her earlier work on the subject of the Donner Party and learn more about her writing process. Award-winning author Alma Katsu joins us now on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Victoria Babu. Alma Katsu, welcome and thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this. Would you set the stage for those who have yet to read The Deep? Sure. Well, you, the short version is you can think of it as a reimagining of the sinking of the Titanic and its sister ship, the Britannic, with a little horror twist. But to get into it a little more, it's the story, primarily it's the story of a young Irish maid by the name of Annie Hebley, who leaves her hometown under sort of mysterious circumstances to become a stewardess on the Titanic. And it really opens her world because she's used to just, you know, living in this very small town. And on the Titanic, she meets all the people, you know, that we've all heard about her on the ship, the rich and the famous, you know, from the Guggenheims and the Astors, you know, down to, to, um, you know, poor commoners like herself. And, but once she's on the ship, she meets this young man that she finds she's very drawn to, and she's not sure why. His name is Mark Fletcher, and he has this infant daughter with him, Amdine. Well, once they meet, all of these sort of unusual, mysterious happenings start on the ship. But before we can find out what's at the bottom of it, it's the night that we've all heard about when the sinking happens, and they're separated. But the story's not over there. Because four years later, Annie is a nurse on the sister ship, the Britannic, which has been converted into a hospital ship for World War I. And she's on her first voyage with the ship when 
a patient's brought aboard, and who should it be but Mark Fletcher, whom she thought died when the Titanic sank four years earlier. Well, they, they are reunited, but no sooner does that happen when the mysterious occurrences start again, and she's sort of forced to confront the fact that, you know, she has a role in the terrible tragedy that took place four years ago, and the tragedy that's about to beset them again. So that's the book in a nutshell. You mentioned the word, you did call it horror. That was my next question. So I, mean, I pick it up and I think, oh, the Titanic, Britannic, that's historical fiction. But so would you, would you, do you like considering in the category of horror versus psychological thriller or even supernatural? I, I think this book and, and the book I did before at The Hunger sort of fall in this category that's sort of a mixture of genres because it definitely has the historical component and it's all set in the past. There's no contemporary aspect to it whatsoever. So very heavily in the historical, but then it also has, you know, I guess it's up to, for debate, right? How people really consider the genre horror. This is very much a reflection of the time of the historical event, the Edwardian era, where there was a great interest in occultism and spiritualism. So it has this very gothic feel, you know, that you're moving from a world you know into a world of the unknown. And, and that's where all the suspense sort of comes from. And there's definitely supernatural elements, but just like the hunger, it's not really spelled out. It's sort of these clues that are, that are inserted into the story and it's up to the reader to make up their mind for themselves. Which is the part I really liked. I really did enjoy that me trying to figure that out because I'm all about that. <laughs> now, uh, one of you talk about real characters from the Titanic that were passengers on board, and then of course your fictional characters. But uh, I did not know this. I guess I wasn't a student of of the Titanic uh, like you have become. But Violet Jessup is a part of both the Titanic and Britannic, having survived both, as you mentioned. Um, what, what are the odds, you know? But was she your inspiration to write this, The Deep? She really was. So, you know, people are surprised when I say I wasn't a Titanic fan before I started writing this book. The whole catalyst for it was um, my husband was watching a documentary on a dive to the Britannic, and they mentioned that it was the sister ship of the Titanic. And I had no idea there was another ship of the line, right? So I guess, you know, real diehard fans would know all about the ships, but I didn't. So I sat down to watch it with them, and the next thing they say is, and there was a woman who survived both sinkings. And I didn't even have to know what her story was. I knew that there would be a book in this. So, um, and that woman was Violet Jessup. So luckily there is an actual diary of hers that was published. So I read the diary and I got a real sense of her. And so she's the inspiration for Annie Hebley. But I really felt like because of what the main character would have to go through for the story, that it wasn't fair to sort of impose that on uh, Violet, who is a real living person. She did survive both ships, so she lived to a ripe old age and, you know, was fairly well known among Titanic fans. So, you know, I didn't want to distort her, her real life by making her the main character. Well, that was my next question, why she, why she was not the main character, but that makes sense now. You know, that's, that's the beauty of talking to the author. You know, why didn't you make her uh, such a central point? But uh, now that I think back of the, of the storyline, it would have been maybe uh, too much. I don't know. You had to, you had to focus on Annie a little bit. Well, 
The question comes up a lot about like being disrespectful to the dead. You know, if you take someone who is a real person who lived their life, how much can you really impose and change about their life story? And, and that's a line in the sand that, you know, is different for every author. And I, even felt a little different about it when I wrote The Hunger and then learned a few things from it. The Hunger had almost no fictional characters. Almost all the main characters were real people. And after that, I, I did sort of, you know, have a change of heart. And so there's more fictional characters, especially among the main characters in the deep. Now, The Hunger, I have to say, I've not read The Hunger, but it is about the Donner Party, correct? Yes. So, you know, one thing I learned was that, you know, a lot of Americans have heard about the Donner Party, but they don't really know the whole story. And that was the case for me. And we all think we know the story. Once I really learned more about them, I realized that that this they had an incredible journey. It wasn't just what happened on the snowy mountaintop, you know, in, in the Nevadas, but it, it the the craziness started from when even before they hit the jumping off point, which was um, independence. So, um you know, that was also very much a book of the time. It's maybe a little more rustic, you know, a little more earthy. <laughs> but I don't want to say primitive, but, you know, more like the frontier West, as opposed to the very polished, gilded, Edwardian age that the, the deep is set in. Well, especially with the Titanic, I mean, which was this grand, you know, uh, this is the maiden voyage of this grand, you know, ship. And, you know, just apples to oranges, really, when you think about it, comparing the Donna Party setting to this Titanic and the Britannic for that for that point too. So you you acknowledge in the book at the end of the book that there was a wealth of knowledge. So I guess my question to you is: wasn't all that knowledge a challenge for you as well? It was. It was a little daunting actually, and I had to ask myself if I really did want to take on such a well-known topic. So my background is actually for most of my professional career, I've been a researcher. So research projects themselves don't worry me too much. So for instance, with the Donner Party, you know, because of the number of people involved and the um, the fact that it was, you know, um, time and space were dictated very much, you know, um, by the event that happened. Um, that might worry some people. For me, that's nothing. That's, that's everyday work. But I really had to think twice about the Titanic because it's an order of magnitude bigger. You know, the Donner Party had about 100 people in the wagon party. This had over 2,300 people between passengers and crew, 2,300 people. So much more written about it. Um, and the most daunting thing is there's this huge legion of fans of people who love the Titanic. And it just makes you worry a little bit that if you get something a little too wrong, that, you know, they might come after you. But people understand I'm writing fiction. I'm not really writing a recreation of the events of the Titanic. I'm using the historical event to sort of tell a different story. And so far, they've been pretty, pretty understanding about that. Well, the Britannic... The Britannic hasn't had nearly the exposure, I mean, it's out there in history, but the public fascination, I guess, is a better description that the Titanic had. Why do you think that is, and why did you choose to include it in the deep? Well, you know, the Titanic, right, is such an iconic event, and I had to ask myself that, too. Here it is 108 years later. Why are people still so fascinated? Well, there's so many very romantic notions about it. I mean, really, that it went down on its maiden voyage. I mean, that 
and then it was the biggest ship of the day. You know, when it was, it, there was sort of a race going on among um, different uh, transatlantic lines to have the biggest ship. And so the Titanic was the biggest ship. It was supposedly unsinkable, and of course it sank. And it had all those amazing people on board the ship. You know, John Jacob Astor, who was considered the richest man in America, his new bride. I mean, they actually had to flee uh, the journalists by going and having their honeymoon in Europe and waiting until the fervor sort of the scandal sort of died down and they were returning to America on the Titanic. Um, and, you know, they weren't alone. Of course, the unsinkable Molly Brown, right? She's a legend and part of her legend was being on the ship and bolstering the passenger spirits. You know, just the whole thing. It's such a grand story that really captures a lot of people's imagination. So it's a little daunting taking on something like that, but it's also, it ended up being a lot of fun. It really was a, a enjoyable book to write. And you can't say that about every book. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. We'll get into that part a little bit later on in this conversation. One thing you bring up in the deep is class disparity, very much so between first class, even second and third, but definitely first class and third class in the book. And you also bring up uh, how women, and you've definitely portrayed it, no matter if they had wealth or not, women were second-class citizens, whether you're wealthy or in third class, whether you were Madeline uh, Ascot or you were Annie, the Irish gal, the stewardess. Yes. I mean, what I did at the outset, and I sort of learned this from hunger too, was to look for the prevalent themes of the day and see if that's something that you want to reflect in the story. I mean, they kind of go hand in hand. I sort of did it backwards with the hunker. I found afterwards, but this time I thought, oh, I'll learn you know, from my mistake. I'll do it up front. Well, those were the two biggest issues of the day, class and income disparity, and also women's suffrage. Women did not have the, the right to vote either in the United States or the UK for quite some time. And, you know, I'm a woman, you're a woman. We've all lived through this, right? And so I did feel like that was an important thing to bring out, I think without sort of beating people over the head about the issue. But the fact of the matter is that every woman during that time had to figure out how to find her way in society while dealing with the constraints that society placed on her. Whether you were a poor woman like Annie or whether you were a rich woman like many of the uh, women who were in first class. One of my favorite characters was Lady Duff Gordon, who was an aristocrat but also had to make her own living. And she ran a high couture fashion house and really ended up inventing some of the whole conventions of uh, merchandising fashion. But, um, you know, even she, as an aristocrat, were, was facing all these constraints. You know, she needed a husband for respectability, and she insisted that he get on the, the lifeboat with her towards the end. Um, so that was a lot of fun, was sort of exploring all of these different um, aspects of women's life. And as far as income and class disparity is, well, you might almost say we're going through a second, um, second, you know, version of that now. Um, but it, uh, we really should look to the awardian times, you know, the Gilded Age. This was the age that coined the term robber baron. Um, you know, can't find a better example than that. Alma Katsu on her most recent book, The Deep. In just a bit, she'll tell us some more about how she approached writing this book and the rest of her novels, given her long background as an intelligence officer. I am a very quick, tight researcher. And with all research projects, it all starts with scoping. So I make sure that I understand what the book is about. 
And then I figure out what are the things that I don't really know well that are really important to this book. And I generally limit myself to two primary sources. And then I only take a couple weeks and I go through those books and I take very detailed notes and then I start writing. We'll hear more about her process and find out about a couple of new books that she has in the works right now as our talk continues with Alma Katsu on Talking with Authors from ATC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Regarding the historical perspective and some of the research you did, you do move between both ships in the book from the Titanic to 1912 to four years later, the Britannic, 1916. And you go back and forth. It's not confusing in any way, but you do tell the story through the perspective, perspective of the various characters. Was that complicated for you to do, to write? So I've actually written a couple books that had what we call frames. So, you know, the, um, it's sort of like a different situation that the characters are in. And then you drop into maybe what you might consider like the main thrust of the story. And, you know, you can do that for different reasons. One is to sort of create suspense or to get the readers to start thinking about what's really going on here. And that's really the reason why I did it in the deep. So, you know, from the outset that things are not really what they appear. Mm -hmm. And it's also a way to sort of, um, you know, weave both of the storylines in. A lot of times when something is happening in the closer time frame, you want to start with that as opposed to ending with that. Just, you know, it, it just draws the reader in. These are all sort of little technical writing things, right, that readers probably don't even care about. It is more difficult. You never want to lose the reader. They always have to feel grounded that they know where they are in time and space. And so when you're jumping in and out of time frames, that makes it harder. It's a little trickier. But if you can do it, I think it's more rewarding for the reader. Well, you have the dates up there, usually at the beginning of each paragraph, whether it's a letter or some indication that, oh, we're on the Britannic now, or, I mean, it's pretty obvious, actually. You did a good job of, of discerning that. But uh, with your background, I know you did several years as a, a senior intelligence uh, researcher yeah, okay. for different, US, different governments within the United States uh, there in Washington, D.C. So you mentioned your researcher. I guess you enjoy doing that. <laughs> It's funny what you end up doing, right? 35 years in the business. It wasn't what I thought I'd be doing for a living. It's pretty interesting because one of the, the things I did, I ended up doing a year as a recruiter for CIA. They like to have people who actually do the work go out and do these recording, uh, recruiting um, uh, blitzes. And so I did that for a year. And I found that nowadays, kids, I'll say kids, when they're in college, you know, they really gear themselves towards getting that job. But when I started out, it wasn't the case, um, mostly because I started out in a more technical field. I started with NSA. And a lot of the skills they needed, uh, those degree programs weren't even really popular then, like computer science was still sort of a nascent field. I know that's how old I am. So um, they gave you these aptitude tests and I tested well and I took the job. So it wasn't anything I ever expected to do. I don't know if I 
like it so much as I love a challenge and it's a very challenging career and it certainly gives you a lot of opportunities to do different things and it challenged me in ways I never expected I would be when I was younger so but not so good for a writing career I had to stop writing for a long time and I didn't pick it up until towards the end of my career right because you did study writing at some point in your career correct well, what ended up happening was, so I, was a, uh, I studied writing before I took the job. So my degrees are in writing. Um, and then at a certain point, I decided I was going to try to learn how to write a novel that I had tried when I was in my 20s. But, you know, when you're in your 20s, you don't maybe really know everything that, that you need to do. But here I was in my 40s. I had a pretty good sense that I really needed to commit to doing it. And it took me 10 years to write uh, my first book, to get it to a state where it was actually saleable to a publisher. 10 years. Uh, I was 50 when I made that sale. Yep. And I've been in the business 10 years now. So now you know how old I am. <laughs> well, that's all good because experience does come, does play, pay off, obviously. I hear this from a lot of the writers that we interview. It does take some time, especially those, the genre of historical fiction because there is so much research and you want to get it right. And especially when you've got fictional characters intertwined and people might be savvy to that particular subject. And you're right when you said, I don't want to get anything wrong because they'll come after you. <laughs> but <laughs> what, is, what is your process, Alma? Um, do you tack ideas and characters on a board? You mentioned something about framing the other day, but is it something physical that you do to lay things out? No, I'm the complete opposite. So this is where some people just hate me um, because, you know, when you've been doing this job for this long, you develop um, really, you know, processes that work for you. And so uh, I am a very quick, tight researcher. And with all research projects, it all starts with scoping. So I make sure that I understand what the book is about. And, and I know some writers approach it the other way. Like they do a bunch of research in order to figure out what it is they're actually going to write about. But I really try for efficiency. So I, I try to understand what it is, what is it that I want this book to be about? And then I figure out what are the things that I don't really know well that are really important to this book. So for me and, and The Deep, it was the ship. I am not a ship person. So my main research um, uh, reference research pieces all had to do with the ships. And I generally limit myself to two primary sources. And then I only take a couple weeks and I go through those books and I take very detailed notes. And then I start writing and I do a lot of spot research along the way. But I, I really try not to let myself get bogged down in the research because not only have I been a researcher, but I've run research programs. I was a researcher for the RAND Corporation. I was the director of a research lab. I've spent a lot of time uh, pulling analysts out of research paralysis. So, yeah, I, I'm not one to lollygag around in the research process. And I also do everything electronically. I try to not use paper, not take notes on paper because it's less efficient. I use spreadsheets, actually, for most of my note taking. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I'm trying to picture that spreadsheet. So would you put your characters in the spreadsheet just to keep track? Because you have quite a few. Yes. And it's, you know, a spreadsheet is basically a relational database. So you can have a lot of different fields and keep track of a lot of information. So like, you know, I'll do spreadsheets for all of my timelines. 
I had a timeline down to the minute of both ships sinking. So both for the Titanic and for the Britannic. And then, uh, you know, less detailed, but also, you know, timelines for a lot of other things, you know, the, for World War One, for instance, and, and the battles and which battle, you know, the, the hospital ship was serving was the Dardanelles. So I had to understand the Dardanelles campaign. Um, and then spreadsheets on the characters and spreadsheets for all of the plotting. So that as you change things, um, you know, it's easier to move them around and watch them. Some people do that, you know, using index cards and storyboarding. I just do that electronically. Very good. Do you read book reviews of your work? Not a lot of them. If there's a major book review, I'll read them because I want to learn from them. And, and it's not that I don't appreciate the, that when any reader leaves a review. As a matter of fact, I spend a lot of time begging readers to leave reviews on Amazon and Goodreads because that's part of the experience for readers. That's how other readers discover your book. But I don't necessarily read them um, just because uh, you know, I mean, I'm a reader too, and I've read books and formed an opinion about them. And then a couple years later, may go back to the book and realize that I think completely differently about the book. So I don't necessarily want to have my opinion of how I should write formed by people who, who may be, I mean, I know they enjoy the book. I don't want this to sound critical at all, but, um, they haven't thought as much about the book as I have <laughs> in writing it. I hope they enjoy it, but maybe not necessarily going to take their criticisms to heart. And that was my next question. Does it help you as a writer? But you really did answer that. Uh, so you want to hear from us, the, the average reader, then, versus, I guess, the formal book reviews that are out there, correct? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, I tend to read maybe the big major book reviews because those are the ones that the industry pays attention to. I'm, I'm not even sure how much readers pay attention to the big book reviews. They tend to be a discovery tool. Like if you're lucky enough to get a review in the New York times, good or bad, you know, that's a way for people to sort of hear about you. Um, and, and I do appreciate all of the reader reviews, but I don't necessarily read all of them. Yeah. You know, that's, that is interesting you say that because as an avid reader, I will get most of mine like this, but um, I will get most of them from just friends. Hey, what are you reading now? And now on Instagram too, I follow a few, I guess, celebrity types who are starting their own book clubs. There's like three or four of them out there now. They're really getting a big following. So I'll see what they've got stacked up in their pictures and I might want to get on one of those too. <laughs> I was going to say, can you, can you send yeah. them a little hint? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, it does help because, you know, I'm scanning it through it and, uh, and they seem to get a, obviously a broader audience and especially with apps like Instagram, I guess a younger one too. And I'm all about getting young people to read and get away from television and iPads or whatever, phones or what have you. So yeah, if they will read, then yay. Um, I understand that you do have two books coming out, uh, one of which is a completely new genre for you, but taps into all those years and your experience as a senior intelligence officer, uh, analyst for several of government agencies that we talked about. What can you share with us about your next two novels? Well, I'm really excited about that one. That's going to be the next one. It'll be coming out about this time next year. The title is Red Widow. And it is, um, you know, it's a modern day story of CIA. It, I'm really thrilled that I got the opportunity to do this. You know, when I started out, you meet agents and editors, and they were all saying, you know, with your background, you really should write a spy novel. But I couldn't quite seem to you know, it's it actually, I think it's kind of hard writing about what you know, right? Because you tend to 
maybe make it too much a reflection of what it's really like, as opposed to, especially with thrillers, you know, keeping the adrenaline up. So this time I work very closely with my editor at Putnam, Sally Kim, and she's brilliant. She's, she's the plot whisperer is what I call her. And she was able to really help me put together a story that I think is it's super twisty. You won't see the ending coming. You won't see several twists before. Really excited about it. So that comes out next spring. And then we did just agree on the next historical horror novel, which will be coming out in two years. And I don't know how much I can tell you about it. The tentative title is The Fervor. It has to do with World War II. And it does have to do with the internment of Japanese-American citizens. Now, I'm Japanese-American. My mom is actually from Japan. She was in Japan for the war. But um, I have a lot of family members on my husband's side who were interned. So this has really been a part of our family culture for a long time. And I'm, I'm really excited to be able to write a story about it. Well, it sounds like your writing is evolving, too, into uh, the spy genre for this next coming, upcoming book, Red Widow. And then, of course, us uh, hitting more closer to home with uh, uh, World War II and the Japanese internment. So it sounds fascinating. Alma Katsu, thank you so very much for joining us here. We look forward to uh, your next two novels. Thank you so much. That's award-winning author Alma Katsu, as we spoke with her in April of 2020 about her latest book, The Deep, by publisher Penguin Random House. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Victoria Babu. The video editor was Carrie Marks. Supervising producer, Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. The HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors Podcast Executive Producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.